All right. This is a note about spiritual practice. I'll outline it quickly. I've often spoken about it. What does Advaita Vedanta say about spiritual practice? Because we are all spiritual seekers. That's why we are here. We know of various spiritual practices, meditation, you know, mindfulness, um, we know of devotion, love and devotion, of doing good works, um, morality, ethics, all of this which is supposed to be part of spiritual life. It seems that we have not even talked about those things. So, what is the Advaita perspective? Spiritual practice. Is this something you cannot see, please? Um, Please tell me, I'll read it out. The Sanskrit is sadhana. The very word sadhana itself is interesting. Sadhan means an instrument by which you achieve something. The word sadhya, these are all related words. Sadhan, sadhya, sadhaka. Sadhya means the goal to be achieved. There's something you want, some effect. So that's the goal. There, there's something I want to achieve. And the way I achieve it, whatever I use to achieve that goal, is sadhan. And I, the one who uses these means to achieve that goal, I am called sadhaka, the practitioner, the seeker. So I want to cross the river and go to the other side of the Ganga. That's my goal, the other bank of the Ganga. And so that is the sadhya. And the way I do it is, there's a little boat which I take. So that is the sadhan. And I am the sadhaka, the one who's crossing over. Notice that once I cross over, I need not carry the boat with me. I let go of the boat. But I can't let go of the boat in the beginning. Nor can I let go of the boat in the middle of the stream. Only after the goal is attained, I can let go of the boat. Anyway, so sadhana, this idea, it comprises all these concepts. Now this is spiritual practice entirely from the Advaitic perspective, non-dual perspective. Notice, it's a very interesting thing. Advaita says, you are Brahman. That's what we have been studying since yesterday. Advaita says, you are that perfect existence consciousness place, Brahman. So you are Brahman, Aham Brahmasmi, all the Mahavakyas, they say that you are Brahman. Now Advaita says, so what's the problem here? You are Brahman, that's it, finished. <laughs> and we say, yeah, that's a problem, but you know, I don't quite feel that. I hear it, I read it, I didn't know about it, now I know about it, but it doesn't seem to solve my problem at all. So my problem is now that I, re I, I hear about it, but I have not, it's not real for me yet. It's not something that is really giving any benefit to me yet. So the problem is now that Brahman, yes, but the problem is we'll make a matrix here, the matrix of sadhana. The problem, solution, method. The problem is I do not know this yet. I mean, it's not real for me. Ignorance is the problem. In Sanskrit, avidya, ignorance, avidya, ajnana, all of these are synonymous words. Ignorance is the problem. 
and the solution is for any kind of ignorance the solution always obviously is knowledge jnana or um, vidya or jnana let's call it jnana jnana will remove ajnana or vidya will remove avidya all right so that's the solution and remember here whatever the ignorance is about the knowledge must be about the same thing and wherever the ignorance there is there the knowledge must come what i mean by this there's this term in sanskrit ashraya and vishaya of jnana and ajnana must be the same what does this mean it's very simple actually um, if i do not know computer science my ignorance is about computer science so the knowledge which i seek must be about obviously computer science if i learn spanish it won't help me <laughs> so i must learn computer science so the knowledge and the ignorance must have the same object that's the in philosophical language the vishaya of ajnana and the vishaya of jnana must be the same thing also the ashraya means where there is ignorance their knowledge must come so my professor knows computer science i don't know computer science that my professor's knowledge will not remove the ignorance here so the knowledge must come here where the ignorance is otherwise you know it's say my guru is a jnani doesn't help me <laughs> so the jnana must come here so here what what are we talking about vedanta says we have ignorance about yourself you yourself as you are now vedanta makes the astonishing claim you don't know there's something very important about yourself which you do not know that's the ignorance so the knowledge also must be about myself about my real self so the whole investigation is about myself and what is the method then investigation uh, in so method is shravana manana nididhyasana don't unnecessarily mystify this is a very easy way to understand it I want to learn computer science so I I sign up for a course in computer science I go to the class I listen to the professor I read the books that is the shravana part of it shravana means literally hearing but practically it means systematically studying of course with the help of a teacher and then manana means thinking about it just reading the book and listening to the teacher and taking notes is not enough I must uh, application of mind I must put in some thinking about it and then absorbing the knowledge assimilating it till it becomes real for me so this is called jnana yoga <coughs> that's it that's the solution to your problem you said that i am brahman is not clear you do this it'll be clear um, yeah now you're laughing <laughs> why are you laughing because you say swami uh, this i know we have been doing it for 30 years <laughs> and unfortunately i have to report i am not enlightened i don't feel that i am brahman as yet it's still not real to me ah then vedanta says there is another problem it is called scattered mind in sanskrit vikshepa scattered mind the mind you are hearing one uh, swami puts it nicely he says you are here but you do not hear 
Mind is scattered, going every which way. We experience it in class also, in, where you are in college, wherever you are. We do not listen with full attention. Um, we are unable to listen, we are unable to absorb. Uh, that does not come so easily. There's a variety among all the students present in a classroom, you'll see. There's a variety in the amount of, uh, in the degree and quality of attention that we put to the subject matter. Scattered mind, unable to assimilate. Once, talk about Vedanta is going on in the presence of Sri Ramakrishna. And uh, he listens carefully, you know, Brahman is real, the world is illusion and so on and so forth. He doesn't comment anything till the very end. In the end he says, these words are good, but they have to be assimilated. In Bengali he said, Kathagulo bhalo, dharana hawa chai. And these words are good, they are spiritual words, very good teaching, but have to be assimilated. So that assimilation is not happening. Scattered mind. What is the solution? Simple. Focus. Concentrated mind. Concentration or focus. In Sanskrit, ekagrata. There is a lot to be said about these things. The entire fields of sadhana, spiritual practice associated with these things. But I am just indicating. the. And what is the method? In Sanskrit it is called upasana. This is the word used in Indian languages for worship. Not knowledge, not investigation, not classroom, worship. Focused concentration on the deity. So your Raja Yoga and Bhakti Yoga, you can sort of pack it in here. Raja Yoga, meditation, Bhakti Yoga, devotion. Here. Remember again, this is the format in Advaita Vedanta. This is the paradigm of non-dual Vedanta. If you go to a Bhakti teacher, none of this will be acceptable. If you go to a, a Patanjali Yoga teacher, they'll turn it um, around. But this is an Advaita Vedanta. Raja Yoga, Bhakti Yoga. And you say, um, yes Swami, but I have been meditating for 30 years too. And unfortunately I have to report my mind is not concentrated yet. I sit for meditation and fall asleep. What's happening now? Ah, third level of problem. And I promise this is the last level of the problem. This is level one, two and then one more. Impure mind. In Sanskrit, Chitta Mala. In um, Uttarakhand, they'll say it as a phrase. Mala vikshepa vidya, ravidya vikshepa mala. That sort of for them sums up the entire problem in spiritual life. Three levels of the problem. Impurities. What are impurities? Our past conditioning of the mind. All the negativities, the vasanas, the rubbish basically which we have dumped into the mind. Converted it into a dumpster over not only one lifetime of incautious li living, many lifetimes. It's unhealthy living and thinking. We have dumped this into the mind. It's become conditioned. And that's why, how do you know it's conditioned? It's just, so Swami, why are you saying my mind is impure? My mind is pure. How do we know it's impure? Swami Prabhavanandaji, he is uh, commenting on, he's a very nice book. 
the gospel of um, the, the Sermon on the Mount according to Vedanta. Jesus says in Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Such a direct statement. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, how do we know that we are not pure in heart? Swami Prabhavanandaji there gives a very nice experiment. So alright, let's do a very simple thing. For one minute, half a minute, let me just sit quietly and say I will intensely think of God in whichever form we are used to. Krishna, Ramakrishna, Jesus, whatever form. We will notice almost inevitably in 30 seconds, in one minute at the most, other thoughts creep in. The mind flickers. Ever so much. Some, some people little less, some people much more. This flickering of the mind, though I decided I will think of God, I can't. Other things come in. This is a sign of impurity of mind. That other things keep boiling up even if I don't want it to. So, there's impure mind. Solution, pure mind. <laughs> that's, that's what they call no-brainer. Pure mind. In Sanskrit, Chitta Shuddhi. This is what we hear about again and again in spiritual life. For a long time in spiritual life. This is the unglamorous part of spiritual life. Cleansing and purifying our inner instrument, the mind. And how do you do that? Karma Yoga. One, one powerful way is Karma Yoga. Alright, now you're set. With Karma Yoga, with the practice of Karma Yoga, impurity of the mind is removed and purity of the mind is gained. Impurity removed, purity is gained. With the pure mind, when you sit for upasana, for meditation, then the scattered mind is removed and the concentrated mind is gained. With the pure and concentrated mind, when you apply it to Vedanta, Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasana, Manisha, Panchakam, what happens is, knowledge flashes, removing ignorance is gone, knowledge flashes, what knowledge? I am Brahman, then this becomes real and the problem is solved. So this is the Advaita Vedanta approach. This is the Advaita Vedanta approach to sadhana. This takes a lot of time. But if this is accomplished, then this, this takes much less time. A pure mind gets concentrated pretty fast. A pure mind is very straight. It, whatever, whatever you put it to, it gets absorbed pretty fast. And this takes almost no time at all. With a pure and concentrated mind, when you apply it to you, it becomes quite obvious what, what, what is being said here. A fact. And then you are enlightened. You realize that you are Brahman. And it's done. So this is the structure of spiritual practice in Vedanta. Why we do it? What is the point? Each practice has a purpose. The practice of Karma Yoga is for purity of mind. The practice of meditation is for focus of mind. And the practice of Jnana Yoga, what we are doing here, is for removing ignorance and gaining knowledge of our reality. That's for enlightenment. So, that's why Shankara says, by knowledge, enlightenment comes at this stage only. In Shankara's structure, knowledge is privileged. Jnana Yoga is, is, the, is the top of the food chain. It is the final practice, the ultimate practice. But it has to be supported by these. The preparation has to be done. Otherwise, it won't work. You can just apply it. I mean, I mean uh, a college kid 
who is maybe high on drugs or something won't work the classroom won't work mind is so scattered or anxious about something in, in personal life won't work mind is scattered and absorbed elsewhere so that person has to set his or life his or her life straight first then focus on the material being taught in the class just like that all right now let's quickly take up the questions some I'll an answer fast and I'll get back to the person who asked the question so that um, Let's see if there's a follow-up. Swamiji, Namaste, can Advaita be considered a religion? If so, does Advaita place itself above all other religions? All right, good question. Um, and it's interesting to think about it. The answer is both yes and no. Is Advaita a religion? Yes, in one sense, in a simple sense, yes, it's a part of Hinduism. Advaita, what is Advaita Vedanta? If you ask for a definition, Vedanta Nama Upanishad Pramanam. Vedanta is the source of spiritual knowledge called the Upanishads. What's that knowledge we are trying to gain? I am Brahman, my own reality. But because it's the Upanishads, because it's part of the Vedas, it's obviously part of the Hindu tradition, so it's part of a religious tradition, yes. So that is true. But when you look closer, does it demand that you have to be a Hindu? No, no, not really. Anybody can get enlightened. Look at the very text we are studying, Chandala and, and the person highly trained in, in the Hindu's tradition, the Vipra, the, the wise Brahmin. Wise Brahmin and the apparently ignorant Chandala. The Chandala is enlightened and he in fact enlightens or brings Shankara to his senses, so to say. So, and this knowledge is a highly impersonal knowledge. See, today, if I go to NYU and talk with David Chalmers about consciousness, I, as a representative of Advaita Vedanta, I have something to say which consciousness studies experts in the 21st century are interested in, in some of the top universities in the world. If a person comes from an obviously religious background, if I go there and start talking about Krishna or Christ, he won't give, he won't give me one minute. Just show me the door. I'm not interested in all this. So, is it religion? In that sense, it does not seem to be religion. Somebody said it's basically the science of reality. It is who we are or what we are. The fundamental nature of ourselves. It applies equally well if you are a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Christian or, a, uh, or Jewish, Muslim, or if you are an atheist, it applies equally well. In fact, if I am a religious person and I believe in it, well, good for you, but it's not really what Advaita is telling you. If I am a not religious person, an atheist, but I get what you are telling me, then Advaita is for you. Yeah. The whole point is to get this insight. Swami Vivekananda said, in the, after the world parliament religions, when he would talk about Vedanta, Tesla would stand at the back. Nikola Tesla, not the car, the scientist. <laughs> he would stand at the back and listen. And later on, Swami Vivekananda had interactions with scientists and all. So he said, the only form of religion acceptable to the modern mind is Advaita. He says, why Advaita is the future religion? Only form. 
The only form of um, spirituality and religion which can stand the attacks of the atheists, the new atheists in today's world. I say to the, to the people who are fanatically religious, I sometimes say this, good if you go and listen to a one month, solidly listen to Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins and um, Sam Harris, cure yourself of religious fanaticism. Then Advaita will take hold. Notice, what we are talking about is not at all touched by the criticisms of the new atheists. Whether it's Dawkins or Harris, I enjoy their discussions and the, what they say makes religious people furious. Have you, some of you seen the YouTube discussions? People who are religious, religious faith, faith based, they're furious when they hear that. Because it's, it's, it shakes the very roots of their, their belief system. And if you're coming from an Advaitic perspective, it's enjoyable, it's fun. Because it leaves what you are thinking about, what this structure, it leaves it completely un unaffected. In fact, one of them, Sam Harris, who is absolutely no friend of religion, he wrote a book, Waking Up. And then he, there he says, it's totally against religion, but he says there are these two traditions, Advaita Vedanta and Dzogchen Buddhism, which is the, which is the core philosophy, the highest teaching of Tibetan Buddhism. With Dalai Lama and others teach. Last time I was in Sedona, we went for the pink jeep tour, <laughs> and on the red rock, there was, this, there was a student group at a distance, and they didn't, you know, voice carries far in the hills, in the high altitude. So they were talking, and I could hear, they didn't know I could hear. It was young boys and girls, and they were saying, I was wearing this. They were saying from a distance, Look, there is the Dalai Lama. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Sam Harris says, Advaita Vedanta and Dzogchen Buddhism, these two have a core of truth which cannot be denied. That they are pointing to, pointing to something. The whole book is about, he's critical. All the religious aspects surrounding Advaita Vedanta. So if you talk about Bhakti Yoga and devotion, all the, he will cut it all down. He is not interested. But the core teaching, at the final point, Sravana Mananan what we talked about today, that he says it cannot be denied because it's not a belief system. It's talking about your reality right now. And Dzogchen Buddhism also says almost the same thing in a different um, perspective. So it's very impersonal. There is a book, God as Being, Consciousness, Bliss. The experience of God as Being, Consciousness, Bliss. David Bentley Hart. David Bentley Hart, who is a Christian theologian of the Eastern Orthodox Church and he says that book is a reply to the New Atheists it's, it's a dialectical polemical book but he says if I want to discuss science I would talk to a scientist why would I talk to a, a kindergarten kid or somebody in grade 5 or something I talk to a scientist so when the atheists attack religion they attack the most commonplace ideas about religion they should take religion at its most serious and sophisticated and have a dialogue with that. What is the most serious and sophisticated? You can ask, what, so what do you mean by most serious and sophisticated? He says, the most sophisticated idea of God, conception of, formulation of God, is God as being, existence. 
God as consciousness, God as bliss. And the names of the chapters in his book, Christian Theologian, names of the chapter, Sat, Chit, Ananda. He says this is most explicitly found in the Vedanta tradition of Hinduism. But he says this is, you can find it in the most developed forms of Christianity and Buddhism, uh, uh, he says Islam and Judaism. You can find this idea, a core idea. So is it a religion? Yes, it's a religion, but it's far more than that. If you don't want to consider it a religion, you need not. All right. It's a philosophy. Is it a philosophy? Well, yes, it's a philosophy because if you go to philosophy departments in India, is Advaita Vedanta being taught there? Is Advaita Vedanta a chapter in book on Indian philosophy? Yes. So it is a philosophy. Some people deny it's not a religion, it's not philosophy. Yes, there is a sense in which it's not a religion, it's not a philosophy. If you ask me, the deepest understanding of Advaita is not religion or philosophy, it's just an accurate statement of fact. The more you begin to understand Advaita, you are amazed and stunned to see, the more you get a grasp. It's just reporting what is a matter of your experience right now. We don't get it because we have clouds of confusion. When those are dispelled, Advaita has, is as simple as saying that here you are sitting in the chair, it's a statement of fact. Here you are, existence, consciousness, please. It's right here. It's a statement of fact. The statement of truth. Right now. In fact, there have been Advaitins, non-dualists, for example, Sri Harsha, their approach is very interesting. They say, dispel all other theories. Cut down all other theories. You don't have to prove Advaita. Advaita is self-proved. When confusions are cleared up, that state of the, what Advaita is saying is evident, it flashes forth. That is the deepest understanding of Advaita. Is it above all other religions? Yes and no. Yes in a dangerous sense. The more you begin to understand, Halfway, in Hindi they say Kacche Advaiti, unripe non-dualists. One symptom is the desire to argue with everybody and prove everybody else wrong. So that's a symptom of growing enthusiasm for Advaita. Very bad idea. Don't do that. A, a contemptuous attitude towards everything else. From Advaitic perspective, see, never be fanatical. Advaita, the spirit of Advaita is not fanatical. It's all inclusive and it's all supporting. Just as Brahman, you say Brahman is the only reality. Does it reject the universe? No. Brahman does not say, I will not allow you guys to exist, only I exist. After all, I'm non-dual. No. Brahman is non-dual in the sense that it includes everything. Nothing is apart from Brahman. In that sense, non-dual. In the same way, all other forms of religion, Gaudapada, Shankaracharya's teacher's teacher says, Tairayamna virudhyate, parasparam virudhyante. All the dualistic philosophies conflict with each other. Each religion clashes with the other. And science clashes with all religions. But all these dualistic philosophies are in conflict with each other. With non-dualism, Advaita Vedanta, none of them are in conflict. Advaita Vedanta has no conflict with any of them. It will find a place for each of them. You know, you say, how? 
you know, Vyavaharika. At the transactional level, they all have their role. The politically correct term in Advaita Vedanta is Vyavaharika. That means transactionally true. But it, what it really means is everything is false. <laughs> Gaudapada says, what does it mean that they don't conflict with Advaita Vedanta? Shankaracharya explains. And that explanation will not, you will not like it. The people who are non-dualists, who are not non-dualists will not like that explanation at all. What is it and how does it harmonize, non-dualism harmonize everything? Shankaracharya comments, he says, in his commentary on Mandukya Karika, he says, there is a man on an elephant, which is not an unknown sight in Kerala, even today you will see. There are many elephants and many people are sitting on elephants. So there is a man going on an elephant and there is another man standing on the roadside says, charge your elephant against mine, we will have an elephant fight. Mm. No, that person does not have an elephant, how can you fight with him? <laughs> Therefore non-dualism does not contradict any other philosophy because they don't exist. From the point of non-dualism. <laughs> That's one way. Very nice if you're a non-dualist. Very aggravating if you're a dualist. I have no contradiction with you because you don't exist. <laughs> you means your philosophical position. The correct, uh, the, well, what I'm saying seriously though, how do you regard the relationship between Advaita and all other philosophies and religions? I regard it this way. It is because of Advaita Vedanta that I can take all religions seriously. All the religions, dualistic religions, what they are talking about is not a matter of faith, far less superstition. They are talking about something real, but that we can know only because uh, only through Advaita Vedanta. We know because of Advaita Vedanta, because it's Advaita Vedanta directly points us towards reality, the ultimate truth. Then I know from that perspective, I can understand the perspective of every other religion. And so that's a very patronizing attitude. Might be. But, but at least make a beginning there. Advaita Vedanta makes religion real for the first time. All the dualistic religions. Otherwise, without Advaita Vedanta, to put it harshly, I will say, without Advaita Vedanta, they become superstitions, matters of belief, faith and they all fall victim to the new atheists. Who will rescue them from Dawkins and Hog um, Christopher Hitchens and uh, no. It, uh, it's, Adva it's Advaita you can say is the foundation of these religions. It's not against religion. It's not contemptuous of religion. All the religions are right and beneficial and true paths but this you see from the Advaita perspective. Good. Who asked this question? If, if, if that person, yeah. So, you're okay? What, what I said, what I said? Actually, I'm asking for my son. Okay. How is love defined and what role does it play in Advaita where the self or God is seemingly purely impersonal? Vast, silent, witness the subject. Yes, it seems to be a particularly loveless philosophy. <laughs> but the highest point of love is oneness. Where the lover and the beloved are one. And it is that point which Advaita talks about. Advaita does not talk about love as relational. 
Advaita talks about Brahman, you can say, is love itself. The, what Advaita term Advaita uses is Ananda. We have not spoken about it yet. We have spoken about existence and consciousness, primarily consciousness. Tomorrow, the, the fifth, fifth verse will talk about Ananda. It is love itself. Another definition of Brahman would be not love between one entity and another, one person and another, or between man and God, but love itself. Ananda itself. Love would be the, what we call love in the human world. And the love between man and God would be the highest manifestation of Brahman. What Vedanta does is this, from the perspective of love. Vedanta divinizes all human relationships and humanizes our relationship with God. Divinizes all relationships means everybody that we see, father, mother, husband, wife, guru, disciple, all are nothing other than Brahman. God in this, in this form, in this particular form. See the divinity, divinize life itself. So divinize your human relationships. That's what Vedanta says. See God in all beings. See, love is the source of the greatest happiness even in, in human life. Love is the source of greatest happiness. But human love is also the source of greatest misery. Relationships, the intimate relationships that people have, that is the source of happiness but also the source of great misery. How can you have that happiness without the misery? Can you? Yes, you can. Divinize it. See the Lord, see the Beloved in everybody, in all beings. Not to run away from life, but to see God in life, in the people you are with. So divinize it. And your relationship with God, humanize it. But Vedanta says, God is the father, the mother, God is the friend, God is the master, I am the servant. Thou art the master, I am thy servant. In San Diego, there was this, this song which they sing, very beautiful. It's a translation from a Kabir bhajan. Uh, Tagore made the translation first. Um, how could this love ever be severed? The love that exists between you, you and me. You, thou the Lord, and I thy servant. Our love is infinite and eternal. It can never dis. Um, it can never be dissipated. It's eternal. So, master and servant, like Hanuman and Rama. The Lord is my master, I am thy servant. Or between friend, Arjuna and Krishna, friend. Friend is a human relationship, master and servant a human relationship, but you apply it to God. Or mother and father, their vatsalya means God is my child. It's very common to think of God as father, especially in the Western countries, in the Abrahamic religions. In India, it's both are possible. God is my father, God is my mother. Sri Ramakrishna used to consider his, his prime attitude towards God was, I am the child, I am the son, thou art my mother. So Kali is my mother, I am the son. But the opposite is also possible. God is my child, God is my baby. So that is the idea behind the Gopala, the baby Krishna or the baby Jesus, you can think of God as your uh, child. Now the child is not something that you approach with awe and you ask for many things, have a whole wish, wish list, God do this and do that. No, a child is somebody you take care of and protect. 
God doesn't need taking care of and protecting, but it's a wonderful attitude. The whole, all of this attitude is for our development. Or the beloved, like Radha and Krishna. So the Lord is the beloved, I am the beloved of the Lord, like that. So yes, love is a part of Bhakti Yoga, is also the highest expression of Brahman. Swamiji, Namaste, why Maya? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> now you have asked it. Why Maya? The question is... Alright, suppose I understand Brahman, Satchidananda, existence, consciousness, bliss, fine. Then why this world? Why is this appearing? This world, why is it appearing before us? And the answer was Maya. Do you, do you remember? Brahmaivahamidam jagatcha sakalam chinmatra vistaritam. I am Brahman. And this entire world is a projection by consciousness. How? Why? Avidyaya trigunaya. By, by avidya here means maya. Maya made of three gunas. Ashesham maya kalpitam. Everything, the entirety of this has been projected or imagined by me through maya. But then you might ask, why maya? Basically you are asking, why did the one become the many? Why did Brahman appear as this universe? Samarsit Mam, after reading a little bit of Vedanta, he comments in one place, one feels Brahman could have let well enough alone. <laughs> Just let be Brahman. Why are you doing all this? We are getting into trouble because of that. Why? There are many answers. One, the dualistic answer would be, one answer would be um, because of karma. We have past karma. Cause must give rise to effect. So karma must give rise to its results. To get the results of our past karma, good or bad, I need a body, I need a world, and I need this, this samsara where I'll get the results. So God makes this, projects all of this. So where did the past karma come from? From earlier life. How did that happen? Because of earlier karma. How did the first karma start? And there you have it. So it, the answer is, it's beginningless. And not satisfactory. Alright, take the language of bhakti. Why did the one become the many? Why did God create the universe? The answer is given Leela for the divine play. It's a, it's a poetic answer, but if you are a logical person, you say, Leela? See, there's a logical problem with it. A child might need to play. A professional footballer might need to play. Why does God need to play? Why is, why is God bored? You can say God was bored and needed to play, fine. But that's a sort of very anthropomorphic kind of uh, approach to God, uh, Leela. And there is a problem of evil, suffering. It might be play to God, but it's a lot of suffering to us. So, for example, in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, Kathamrita, uh, he uh, says, he gives, somebody asked him this question, why is there so much suffering in the world? So one by one he's trying out all the answers, and the person who asked the question is rejecting the answers. So finally he says, it is the Leela of God. Leela means divine play. So we play, God has Leela. So, but basically it's play. It's the divine, the play of the divine. And uh, the gentleman who asked was one Mr. Mukherjee in Calcutta. He said, 
it might be leela for the lord but it's death to us in bengali tar leela ramra mori pain disease death suffering poverty all kinds of negativities there is enormous suffering in this world there is no doubt about it it's all good is easy to say no it's not all good it's an insult to the suffering masses to say that it's all good so there is so much suffering in the world it's death to us what do you mean it's leela a little kid who is playing and uh, uh, smashes uh, the headlights of your car with his ball when he hits it and it catches the little guy what did you do that it's leela it's my divine play <laughs> that won't cut ice with you it it it, it, it won't uh, uh, have traction with you so similarly god why leela then sri ramakrishna gives his answer the real answer it's death to us he said sri ramakrishna said and what are you who are you if you investigate you come up with this i am brahman then the problem is solved how is it solved if i bite my own tongue whom do i blame whom can i complain against who is the source of the evil no it is not now you might say push push further than that i'm coming to the question why maya advaita vedanta says the one has not become the many it is still brahman but it appears in this way you might push back further and say same why does it appear in this way all right i understand brahman is brahman it's still sachidananda but why does it appear in this way i can ask why does it appear in this way and the answer is maya because of maya that's what shankara said in the third verse because of maya brahman appears in this way consciousness projects all of this now comes the question why is there maya at all why is there maya at all why maya if you ask this question you can like a little boy if you ask it's got only one question why and at the end the parent has to say because i say so go to bed <laughs> no i'm not saying that there is actually an answer to this why maya suppose you ask you accept everything till this point that yes there may be brahman and brahman is appearing in this way really nothing is wrong it's like a movie like a dream everything is perfect we are existence consciousness place fine but still why is it appearing like this why maya vivekananda he says in one place the question itself is wrong but if you are that little boy you can still ask why is the question wrong it seems obvious to vivekananda but it didn't seem obvious to me so i asked the question why is the question wrong and i couldn't find the answer anywhere for a lot took me a long time to understand when you look at it yes correct vivekananda is correct the question is wrong let me explain why this question is wrong if you understand this you get a deeper understanding of advaita vedanta itself why can you not ask why maya because what is maya Maya is time-space causation, desha kala nimitta in in Shankara's terms. Here Shankara comes very close, or rather Kant comes very close to Shankara. Time-space causation. Now, why can you not ask why Maya? It's like you're asking why causation. But what is causation? what do you want 
when you ask the question why what are you what do you what are you asking what what answer will satisfy you a cause a cause aren't you asking for a cause when you say why why is the grass wet not here it's not easily wet here <laughs> why is the grass wet you say because it rained because it rained why did it rain because there were clouds why are there clouds because the sun and evaporation and so on because when you ask why the answer which will satisfy you it must be because cause you're asking for a cause I've seen an effect and I'm asking for a cause all right now that you can do within causation where cause and effect work which is another way of saying within Maya but when you ask why Maya you are asking basically why causation you are asking for a cause of causation that's an illegitimate question because causation has not started yet only after causation can you find causes and effects but for causation itself you can't find a cause it's like asking time space causation what is outside space wrong question outside and inside make sense only when there is space if you ask what is before time wrong question before and after make sense only when time is there therefore in the same way if you ask what is the cause of causation wrong question cause and effect make sense only when you accept causation only when you accept Maya everything else you can ask why but about Maya you cannot ask why because why has not started yet literally if you ask why about Maya you are asking why why causation means why right cause and effect did you see what I was trying to say Swami Vivekananda says this question why Maya is wrong so um, don't worry we have time I will I'll take a little more time <laughs> time is not going to come to an end <laughs> not right now at least I think it was one of the Swamis on the West Coast maybe Trigunati Tanandaji or somebody after that who said I forget but, but a very interesting quote he said about this question on this side of enlightenment we have the question no answer on that side of enlightenment the enlightened ones they have the answer but no question <laughs> notice Vivekananda Ramakrishna none of them ask this question for them it does not seem it seems to be a vital question once you read a lot of Advaita you seem to come to this question why am I and seems to be ah, I've got the real question doesn't seem to be a question for them why not they have the answer there's no question there we have the question no real answer here somebody asked this question to Vivekananda I think Manmatavau he was a disciple of Vivekananda it's, it's in the reminiscences of Vivekananda he said once Vivekananda was very pleased with this young man and he said ask for anything I'll give it to you and um, you know in India we have this Rishi a sage grants you a boon so you can ask for whatever you want so this person said please explain Maya to me and Vivekananda said ask something else <laughs> then the person persisted this Manmata Babu he persisted he said getting a guru like you if I cannot get the answer to this question then I'll never get this answer in, in my life with a guru like Vivekananda 
So you have to, this is the question I'm asking. What is Brahman easy to explain? I can even, even immediately start talking about Manishapanchakam. What is Maya? Uh, that is a really tough one. Vivekananda started speaking. What he started speaking, um, the gentleman has not recorded. But maybe we can understand because Vivekananda actually gave three talks on Maya. Maya lectures, one, two, three are there. I actually summed up those talks in one of my um, YouTube talks. There's a series of talks on Vivekananda's Jnana Yoga. One of those talks I gave was about Maya. But anyway, this gentleman says, as Vivekananda was speaking, the room started whirling around me. I think that's an effect it has when you talk about Maya. <laughs> and then, after, uh, yes, uh, and then Vivekananda disappeared. My body disappeared, the room disappeared into a white light. I could only hear Vivekananda's words. The voice was still there. And I burst out saying, Oh, it is all Maya. Even you, your teaching and this, uh, uh, this Ramakrishna mission, the Vedanta societies you are starting, all of it is Maya. And Vivekananda, uh, he said, Oh, as he said this, uh, this, this disciple, he suddenly realized they had been speaking in Bengali. In Indian languages you have uh, three levels of you. So there is in Hindi or Bengali, Aap or Apni, which is, which is like thou or, or addressed to a superior person, to maybe your parents or your teacher or somebody superior. And there is the equal, you, tum, to me. Or, uh, and there is the diminutive, which you like, tui or tu in Hindi, which you use only to maybe a child or in a hierarchical system like to a servant or somebody. And this disciple realized that suddenly he had addressed his guru whom you should use the respectful you, the thou. He had addressed him as the familiar you, tum, to me. The moment he realized that, you know, this structure, hierarchy, difference, it comes into his mind, he snaps back into this room where Vivekananda is sitting, looking down at him, everything comes back into picture again. And Vivekananda is looking at him and smiling and saying, yes, you're right, that everything is Maya here. If you can, then realize your nature as Brahman and become absorbed in it. If you cannot, come and help me in this work. <laughs> Vivekananda says, let all vision cease. That means you realize yourself as Brahman. Or if you cannot, dream but truer dreams which are eternal love and service free. Truer dream, it's still a dream, it's still within Maya, but what's the best form of Maya? What's the, if you must dream, then dream the best possible dream. Why dream a man nightmare? What's the best possible dream? Most, the best life possible in a Vedantic sense. Eternal love and service free. Your relationship to everybody, irrespective, friend, relative, so-called enemy or person you don't know, relation is of one of love. To everybody, without, does not matter how, what they think of you, how they behave with you, no. And the second one is that love is expressed in service. What do you do in life? As long as the body is there, mind is there, service. Service free, without asking for anything in return, nothing in return. 
You might say these are very high ideals, best ideals in life. The highest, finest ideals in life. But possible, difficult, but possible when you center yourself in the knowledge, I am Brahman. If you center yourself in the knowledge that I am Brahman, then everybody becomes your own. The relationship is one of love. And you, your love is expressed in service to everybody. Alright, why Maya? Where is thought located? Is thought non-dual or dual? Where is thought located? I might say in the mind. In the subtle body, sukshma sharira. You locate it yourself right now. Try it. This question itself shows that science or a materialistic interpretation is not enough. Forget consciousness, the Advaitic idea of consciousness. Very subtle. Just take something everybody is familiar with. Thought. And just think 2 plus 2 is 4 or a rose is red. Just think that. Where is that located? If you ask a, anything real in, in, in this world, must be located somewhere in space and time. Where is that located? The scientist will say, why here? Point it out. They'll point to some neuronal activity. No, no, point out my thought. What are you talking about? Science by definition has to stop at the last activity of the neurons. True or not? Beyond that, the jump to your thought, rose is red. No scientist knows. Not only no, does not know, the hard problem of consciousness says you cannot know. That jump, that gap is unbridgeable. Because where matter stops, science stops there too, under the current paradigm of science. You see, psychology is a science. Yes, but the, the connection between psychology and brain science is not known at all. True or not, there are so many people who are qualified doctors and scientists here. Up to the brain, from the brain downwards, brain, physical body, chemistry, physics, down to even mathematical physics, most fundamental, all of it is connected as a clear structure. You can explain the brain in terms of physiological processes. You can explain physiology in terms of chemistry. You can explain chemistry in terms of physics. And mathematical physics, uh, you can explain a lot of physics itself. But there, from the brain to the thought. So the most, many scientists are there who would rather that there are no thought at all. If everything stops at brain, fine. <laughs> this thought and consciousness and um, this is messy. Because we can't fit it into the picture. Physically, you really cannot locate. We would say, we'd say operationally, a thought will be located in the brain somewhere. But only the neuronal activity is located in the brain. Is thought non-dual? No, not non-dual. Because one thought is different from another. Consciousness is non-dual. How is thought different from one another? You think of ice cream, that's a thought. It's a thought about ice cream. You think of a cookie, it's a thought about cookie. The two thoughts are different because their contents are different. The two thoughts are different because one starts and stops, the other begins and then stops. They are differentiated in time, they are differentiated in content. Let me do a little rapid fire round. There one or two have set aside because it's not very clear to me. We'll see if I get time.
So the question is, the question regarding the experience of blankness during deep sleep. From the experience we can say that we had a good sleep only after waking up. Based on how our body and mind feels, um, if it is refreshing we probably had a longer duration of deep sleep. But there was no first person experience during the event. So my question is how is Vedanta so certain about deep sleep? Deep sleep is an interesting case because there the mind is not operational. You see why is it interesting and important for Advaita Vedanta even when we talk so much about consciousness I'll tell you in most cases when we are listening to it and thinking we say yeah I understand we are basically thinking about the mind in some subtle form or the other. It's not so easy to distinguish consciousness from the mind. That if you can do that, even in understanding, you're just one step away from enlightenment. So, deep sleep is interesting. If you can appreciate how there is consciousness in deep sleep where the mind is obviously shut down, then you begin to understand what Advaita means by consciousness. It does not mean what we normally mean by consciousness. Even in consciousness studies, what is meant by consciousness are thoughts, feelings, emotions, perceptions. This is not consciousness. They are objects in the light of consciousness, subtle objects. So how is Vedanta sure about deep sleep? Because we all report deep sleep when we wake up in the morning. We know that there were periods of dreams. And we know that there were periods of no dreams. We feel it. Now, suppose there was no deep sleep. What would we report when we wake up? When we wake up in the morning, we would report, I went to sleep, I dreamt, I woke up. We would never report, I went to sleep, I dreamt and there was periods of nothing. This period of nothing, how would you report it unless it's experienced? And how would it be experienced unless there is some kind of basal consciousness which notes the absence of things? Now there is a related question which you might ask, if the mind is not operating, what notes it? You see, how do we normally note and remember experiences? You are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and it's recorded in memory. And when we recall the memory, I remember eating that cookie or brownie today. It's a nice brownie by the way. <laughs> I remember eating that brownie today. That I recovered from my memory. I can distinctly have the memory of eating it. That means the conscious, the person was active and it records something. But in deep sleep the person is not there. You don't recall sleeping in the way you recall other things. If you recall, I was asleep, then you are not asleep. Yes? Time elapsed and causing this thought, so this is one uh, objection. Are we really recalling an experience of deep sleep or are we inferring it? The times, there's time elapsed and there was no dream corresponding to that time, so we had deep sleep at that time. Is this what is happening? Again Advaita will say, look back to your experience. Do we wake up and do we say, ah, I recall dreams and let me look at the time. This time is unaccounted for and there must have been deep sleep. We never do that. Instinctively we say, blank, nothing, I, it was completely blank. Recall, just recall your experience. There was a period of nothingness in Sanskrit. 
Sukham maham aswapsama nakinchidavedisham. I slept happily. I did not know anything. It's just subtly look back upon your recollection of deep sleep. It's something like that. But why it seems to be different? It does not seem to be memory. Because um, there is no person who is involved in experiencing deep sleep. If the person was there, it wouldn't be deep sleep. Yes. What? Consider Amanas come where the mind is also not contemplating anything, it's, it's, it's quiet. Yeah. Sleeping person. Hmm. But that actually translates similar to a, a deep sleep experience as well, right? But now coming out of it, is it also not only possible because I am having some sort of a track of time or something? No, again, why I am disputing that is you don't do that. You don't actually look back and make an inference. This period of time was unaccounted for, so that must be deep sleep. No, we don't do that. Actually, the Nayaika makes an objection like that, that it's an inference. You don't experience deep sleep, you infer that you had deep sleep. But where is the process of inference? Show me. We never do an inference. We actually instinctively say, I experienced blankness. Why this seems problematic is, you never have the experience of I experience blankness. The way I, I am experiencing this room. Um, there is no time to go into it. There is a difference between Sakshi and Pramata. Pramata is consciousness involved with the mind which deploys the instruments of knowledge and gathers in information. Consciousness plus mind plus eyes I see. Consciousness plus mind plus ears, I hear. Consciousness plus mind, in the mind, I think, I remember, I understand. So this is called pramata, the knower. This one goes to sleep in deep sleep. So, consciousness remains by itself shining on the blankness. What happens is mind, according to Vedanta, is resolved back into the primal ignorance. The causal body remains. The subtle body is now absorbed back into, or the mind is absorbed back into its causal state, doesn't function. Basically, it simply goes to sleep. And that is revealed by you, the consciousness. But that is also recorded, not in memory, because memory is not functioning. This you find in Vedanta Sara, where the description of Ananda Mayakosha is there. There it says, this is the phrase. I'll just tell you what it is and leave it at that. Ati sukshma bhi agyana vritti bhi. By the extraordinarily subtle modifications of agyana, of, of, of maya itself, the experience of deep sleep is recorded. Ati sukshma means extraordinarily subtle. What do you mean extraordinarily subtle? Thoughts are subtle. Sukshma vritti means chitta vritti, the, the modifications of the mind, the thoughts which we are having now. Ati sukshma means Modifications beyond the mind. What is beyond the mind? Causal body, Ajnana or the Anandamaya Kosha. It's fairly technical. Can the Anandamaya Kosha record anything? If you ask, can it actually record? How will it record anything? Because it can, because Anandamaya Kosha is basically part of Maya. It's made of, as Manisha Panchakam said, Trigunaya, three gunas. And the three gunas are dynamic. They are always changing, they are active, and so they can record, they can register the trace of deep sleep, which becomes evident when you wake up. Anyway, so that's, that's that.
then oh this one is also about deep sleep any difference between deep sleep and death um, <laughs> what happened oh yeah that's true deep sleep you wake up from De death is physical body gone subtle body moves to another body consciousness is still present deep sleep no physical body is felt no mind consciousness still present it looks like we get to consciousness really close but are still are away what is preventing in deep sleep that puts me back into ignorance okay this is actually a good question um, there will be a period after death which is what we gather we really have to go and die and then see what happens but <laughs> before that what we can gather from all the text is that there will be a period after death when the physical body is destroyed and the subtle body withdraws into a causal state which will be like deep sleep but as soon as our previous karma moves us into different planes of experience we get other bodies and again the, the subtle body becomes active now his question is it looks like we get to consciousness really close in deep sleep notice the language is very interesting we get really close to consciousness in deep sleep who's the we? I get close to consciousness you are consciousness ah. see notice you're still speaking as the mind you're still speaking as the person that's why you feel I get close to consciousness I get away from consciousness you neither get close to consciousness nor do you get away far away from consciousness you are consciousness consciousness seems very far away to the person who does not understand what consciousness is the Upanishad says tad dure tad it is very far it is closer than the closest and the commentator explains to the one who knows it not what consciousness is it is farther than the farthest to one who knows what it is it is closer than the closest it is I myself can you get far away from yourself you yourself whatever you are can you get far away from yourself no can you get any closer to yourself no you are yourself but but what can happen is we might get the error or illusion the delusion of being far away or near because I have identified with my, myself with a body mind what you describe as my real nature sometimes seems very real and, and close to me sometimes seems very theoretical and abstract to me but you the one to which it seems close and you the one to which it seems abstract you are that consciousness If consciousness is fundamental, all pervading is everything, example an atom, conscious. Vedantic answer, no, 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 not that way. So this is the problem that David Chalmers is running into. He seems to be saying this, panpsychism. But this is obviously scientifically people, I mean I've seen in discussions, scientists, uh, um, physicists for example, becoming furious. They say there's no evidence that an atom or a, or a molecule is conscious they'll say that this is not what Advaita Vedanta says 
Let me give an example. In our dream, very soon we'll go and sleep and maybe we'll dream. Horror of horrors, a dream, another lecture. <laughs> Which is going to last. Somebody said, I dreamt Swami, you came in my dreams. Then what happened? You gave me a lecture. <laughs> I said, I am sorry. <laughs> gave me a Vedanta talk. Suppose in your lecture, uh, in your dream, you see uh, this hall and there are people there and uh, there are chairs and tables and yes, even a lecturer, a lectern, all of it is there. Now, you say that, oh, this is all being dreamt by my mind. My mind alone has become all of this in the dream. Now, suppose I investigate every item in the dream, will I find my mind? In my dream, I, if I go and open up a table or a computer, will I find the mind there? No. In my dream, I'm walking in the park. And say, somebody says, this is all a dream, it's all in your mind. If I dig deep into the park, will I find my mind? No. It's not like that. It's not that the park is there, the computer is there, the table is there, and also the mind is there. No, no. It is the mind appearing in this way. It is consciousness appearing as living and non-living. This is a diff difference. Consciousness, Advaita Vedanta says, Brahman appears as this world of living and non-living entities. The difference is this. What differentiates between living and non-living? Vedanta has very clear, uh, very elegant definitions. The living being is that entity which has a subtle body, sukshma sharira. It's there the la in the language itself. When you say living, you put it in Sanskrit, it becomes clear. Prana. Living means prana. And the pranamaya kosha is part of the subtle body. Pranamaya kosha, manomaya kosha, vijnanamaya kosha. This is the subtle body. So anything that has prana will have the subtle body and that is a living being. Their consciousness will be manifest and our consciousness studies experts will say, ah, that is conscious. And this is not conscious. You are sitting in your car, there is a conscious driver in the car and the Google driverless car drives by, there is no conscious driver in that car. That's the, the consciousness studies expert will say that. What Advaita says is, all of it is an appearance in consciousness. Not that, Advaita does not mean by that, when it says all is Brahman, it does not mean the individual atoms will also start you know, becoming conscious and start attending classes. You know, <laughs> keep, a, keep a little chair for a small atom sitting there. No. The play of consciousness, the, the effect of consciousness, the experience of consciousness will be very evident in living beings. It will not be evident in non-living beings. But both the living entity and the non-living entity are appearances in Brahman. From the point of Brahman, there is only Brahman. And it appears in so many ways. Yeah. In a movie, the screen, suppose you project from there, you will see people, living beings, you will see um, non-living, you know, the sky and the ocean and the earth. But all of it is just light. All of it is just pictures. In the same way, uh, all of it is Brahman appearing as the living and the non-living. Swami Vivekananda put it this way in his poem, One alone exists, it appears as nature soul. Soul here means the sentient living entity. 
Nature means the non-living material world, but both are appearances in Brahman. It's not that, you see, when you say, will an atom be conscious? We're still thinking in terms of this body is conscious. Not consciousness in a body. When Advaita says consciousness, it means the body in consciousness. Okay. We had this debate uh, in, Man in Brooklyn. There was a debate between David Chalmers and Christoph Ko uh, Koch, who is the chief scientist for the Paul Allen Brain Institute. It's a very interesting debate. David Chalmers talks about panpsychism, which is one consciousness everywhere in throughout nature. And Christoph Koch is a material, materialist, reductionist. He has written a book, The Confessions of a Romantic Reduc Reductionist or something, <laughs> on consciousness. So he says consciousness is a product of the brain. Anyhow, they did not come to any agreement, but they were surprisingly friendly. Though at one point, I think uh, David Chalmers poured a glass of water on Christoph Koch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Recently I came across this shloka and Shankara's caution with respect to work and guru. Bhava advaitam sadakuryad, kriya advaitam makaschit, advaitam trishu lokeshu na advaitam gurunasaha. Okay. So here is the caution. This is a traditional shloka. Always have, be centered in the knowledge of advaita within, but don't try to express it in, in day to day life. In day-to-day -day life, all common sense must be maintained, right? Some people get so carried, I've seen that. Some people get, and they write to me also. I, the same existence, consciousness, bliss as yourself, manifesting through this body and mind as Rajesh, I'm writing to you now. <laughs> I've, I've got multiple emails like that. That is Kriya Advaitam, trying to be non-dualistic in practice. But the moment as you say, when you say Kriya in practice, in practice multiplicity is, is already there. Otherwise there cannot be any practical life. Yeah. In one indivisible Brahman there is no practical, there is no question of practical life. In practical life Brahman appears in multiple forms. When Brahman appears in multiple forms, the logic of that multiplicity should be maintained. With the background awareness, I am Brahman. If you lose the background awareness, if you lose the background awareness, you are trapped in samsara. If you have that background awareness, samsara becomes a leela for you. If the movie, in the movie, see, in the movie, King Kong comes and attacks New York and smashes the buildings and all of that, and you cheer and clap, oh, wonderful. Why? Because it's a movie. In the movie hall, if even a little monkey came, let alone King Kong, people would scream and run. What's the difference between the giant King Kong on the screen and the little monkey there? The difference is that's an appearance. And this is real. Real means it can bite me. It's as, as real as this body. King Kong on the screen is not as real as this body. So, the appearance of multiplicity on the oneness of Brahman is joy. Because you are the oneness of Brahman. You appear in the multiplicity and enjoy this from the point of view of Brahman. So that's the way to enjoy uh, Advaita Vedanta. Not convert it into some kind of forced 
oneness. Um, but that knowledge within will inspire you to self unselfishness, to inspire you to love and oneness and service in action. Yes. It will overcome negativities. That's why it says, Na Guru Na Sa, don't do Advaita with Guru. Now I am the, in a traditional form, the Guru is to be respected. I am Brahman, you are Brahman, so what is there to, to bow down to you? You can bow down to me if you like. <laughs> never, never, never. <laughs> yes, that's the horror of it. One, one uh, great teacher, one of our teachers in, in Belurmat, he put it this way. He said, Bhakti is for the Lord. Devotion is to be rendered to God. And knowledge to be used upon oneself. You use this knowledge on oneself. I am not the body, not the mind. I am the witness consciousness. I am the witness of the waking, dreaming and deep sleep. Use it upon yourself. And so overcome the limitations of body and mind. The tyranny of a physical body. Overcome that. And to Bhagawan, I bow down. Love, devotion, respect. And then the, the Swami told us, but you fools, we were novices. You fools, you apply jnana, knowledge to the Lord. I am Brahman. You are also Brahman. So why should I bow down to you? We are one and the same thing. Uh, and apply devotion to yourself. <laughs> my food and my rest and my relaxation. Everything must be nice. That is devotion to the body. No, just the opposite. Sri Ramakrishna put it beautifully. In Bengal, uh, in rural India in fact, women, they tie the keys, a bunch of keys of the household to the hem of their sari. So the whole house is under the control. So they tie it to the hem of the sari. Uh, that's, that, that's where it hangs. He uses this as a metaphor. He says, tie the knowledge of Advaita to the hem of your cloth and then do whatever you like. Do whatever you like means you can spend a life of devotion to God. You can spend a life of service to humanity. You can spend a life of complete absorption and contemplation on Brahman. Doesn't matter. Whatever you do will be an expression of that non-dual knowledge. Maybe you would like to be absorbed in that, nothing else. Fine. Maybe you would like to live, create an artificial distance between yourself and Brahman. Then you become the jiva and Brahman becomes God. And you live a life of devotion to God. Artificial difference. Because you are that actually. There's a very beautiful saying. Uh, it goes like this. Bodhat prat dvaitam mohaya. Before enlightenment, duality leads to delusion. Samsara. Prapte manishaya. See, same word, manisha. This conviction. Once this clarity about non-duality comes, I am Brahman, it comes. Prapte manishaya. Bhaktiartham kalpitam dvaitam advaita adapisundaram. The imagined duality, it's an imagined duality because duality is not real, non-duality is real. The imagined duality, why would you imagine duality? For the sake of love. To practice love there must be a, at least an experience, not real duality, but an experienced duality between yourself and the beloved. So my Lord, my Krishna, my Durga or Kali, and I the worshipper, she the mother, I the son, he the Lord, I am the uh, servant. This imagined difference, Advaita Adapi Sundaram, it is more beautiful than non-duality. 
Duality before enlightenment traps you in samsara. After enlightenment, the imagined duality, the duality imagined for love, for bhakti, is more beautiful than non-duality. Why more beautiful? Because it's safe. It's King Kong on the screen. You are confining it on the foundation of non-duality. You are using duality to enjoy that non-duality, basically. Yeah. Hanuman, the beautiful thing. Ramachandra asked Hanuman, what do you think of me? And Hanuman said, from the point of view this, of this Hanuman body, thou art the master, I am thy servant. Deha buddhya daso aham. From the point of view of the body, I am thy servant. Jiva buddhya twadam shaka. As the sentient being in the Hanuman body, you are the whole, I am thy part. Atma buddhya tu tvamevaham iti me nishchitabadi. But from the point of view of Atman, consciousness, you and I are the same thing. This is my conviction. Which is true, all three are true. Depending on your shifting standpoint. Take the standpoint in the body, thou art the Lord, I am thy, uh, uh, the servant. Take the point of view of the sentient being in this body, thou art the whole, I am thy part. I am a ray of the sun. And take the point of view of infinite consciousness, I and you are one. The I and you are erased, there is one limitless ocean of Brahman. And this is my conviction. First one is Dvaita, dualism. Second one is Vishishta Dvaita, qualified monism. The third one is Advaita, non-dualism. To which one strict non-dualist replied. This was Sri Ramakrishna's point of view. Once Swami Turiyananda said this to another monk in Banaras who was a strict non-dualist. He said, no, 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 that strict non-dualist said, no, no, this is not the meaning. From the point of view, I am the servant, thou art the Lord, but point of view of the body, point of view of the body is wrong, you are not the body. So you are not the servant. Point of view of the subtle body, Sukhma the sentient being inside, you are the whole, I am thy part, but that, you are not the mind either. As Atma, you and I are one. That's correct, because we are the Atman. So that's a strict non-dualist would say that. Only Aham Brahmasmi, non-dualism is correct. The other two are rejected. But that's not quite the spirit of what Hanuman said. Yeah, Hanuman said, all three are correct. And that's how Sri Ramakrishna liked it. Yes. 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 Yadgatva nanivartanti means what? After going where one does not return. So one does not return means that could be interpreted in different ways. It's definitely true that after enlightenment one lives as a jivan mukta. Enlightened while living. Otherwise, if you do not admit Jivan Mukti, which Advaita Vedanta admits, if you do not admit Jivan Mukti, enlightened by living, then all the masters who are living are not enlightened. And if you were enlightened, you would die immediately, which is not an attractive prospect. <laughs> Going there, one does not come back. If you mean after enlightenment, one does not come back to this life at all. Then uh, there is no question of an enlightened master. So Jivan Mukti is understood. Going where one does not come back means one realizes I am Brahman. The separate existence which was born of delusion, that never returns. 
that never returns. Now when you come back, you know you are Brahman and you come back here, but this person again reappears. You are not limited by this person anymore. In your awareness, this body is there and the mind is there and the personality is there in the mind, which you are not, you are Brahman. But using this body-mind personality, now can you play the role of a bhakta? You can. The best way to understand these questions is refer to the life of somebody you considered enlightened. After enlightenment, do they manifest bhakti? Yeah, they do. More beautifully and more authentically than anybody else. For the first time, God is real for them. Sri Krishna says in the Gita, there are four kinds of devotees, four, pe four kinds of people who are devoted to me. Atharthi, people who want something. Uh, Artha, those who are in distress, they are in trouble. Um, Jigyasu, the seeker, like us. We want to, we love God, we are trying to realize God. But Jnanicha, the enlightened one too. And then Krishna goes on to say, all are good. But the Jnani is specially dear to me and I to him. Because I am for the first time real to the Jnani. Remember, this imagined duality, the Jnani can do it. All the fact, whatever we can do, the Jnani can do. Because the body, mind, all are available to the Jnani. Only the Jnani knows these are appearances. Yeah. Does the Jnani have to do it? No. A Jnani might remain, say, like Totapuri or Ramana Maharshi, in the Aham Brahmasmi mode. Or a Jnani might take the devotional approach also. But there it will be imagined. If you ask Sri Ramakrishna, are you really mother and child? Is Kali your mother and you are the child? He'll say yes. Really? He'll say no. <laughs> she and I are one. <laughs> but he would say this is more fun. Where does the mind reside and where does consciousness reside? The direct answer to this, mind, body, universe, all resides in consciousness. Just a couple of more and then we'll be done for the day. We have already taken half an hour extra. Body, mind, consciousness, body, mind, awareness, are these the, the same tripods or triads, let's say? If so, is consciousness synonymous to awareness? Yes. I am using the words consciousness, awareness, sentience indifferently because none of them actually correspond to what is meant by chit or samvit. The reason why this creates confusion is, for example, if you read I am that, Nisargadatta, he makes a difference between consciousness and awareness. Correct. But remember, it is translated from Marathi, from the original Marathi. Basically what happens is, there is this empirical awareness which we have. Right now you all, not only are we aware of the body, just see, not only are we aware of the mind, but we are also aware of a kind of awareness. Right? A sentience and awareness right now. If you are aware of it, it cannot be the ultimate awareness. This awareness which you have, it's going to disappear very quickly. It's already disappearing for some. <laughs> the moment you fall asleep, Asleep, this empirical awareness in the mind, this is the technical term is Chidabhasa, reflected consciousness. This disappears when the mind is asleep. So this, if you call this aware, if you call this consciousness, this will disappear when the mind is asleep. This will disappear in, when the body is dead. 
uh, for some time. But if the pure consciousness or the Atman you call that awareness, that will continue. So depending on the terms you use, yes. True, but even Jnanam and Pragyanam we have to define. Um, Pragyanam, see these are, if you know the difference between Lakshyartha and Vachyartha, the direct meaning and the implied meaning. Implied meaning is always pure consciousness, the ultimate reality. The direct meaning is what you experience right now. Good question. Alright, the last one. Let's see what this has to offer. Now oh, this is diagonal, like this. <laughs> Swami, the experience of a constant I which we use through deep sleep to active life to try and realize consciousness, is that not also an illusion? A series of memor um, uh, memories of our brain physically, chemically holds to try and formulate an I, which disappears when our brain stops working. So all these we have assumed, right? Yeah. Advaita says, look to your experience directly. Why even bring, bring the brain into it? Look to your experience directly. All throughout your experience from your earliest babyhood till now, even the deep sleep, unconsciousness, anesthesia, whatever we have experienced, we have experienced it. If you have experienced it, it must have appeared to consciousness. Call it consciousness, awareness, sentience. What is that one unbroken thing which claims all experience for itself? This is what we are asking. What is its relation to a brain is something that scientists start studying. And we are far away from reaching any kind of conclusion. But in India, we have in many Indian languages this thing, you know. You can catch your nose like this or you can catch it like this. For consciousness, it's directly available to you. Not even in front of your nose, behind your nose actually. I'm joking. Consciousness is directly and constantly available to us. See. Look at your experience. Which experience? Every experience. What the, what the objection to consciousness studies is, what they're trying to do is, they're trying to make it an object. Because the paradigm of science is you can only study an object. I have, I've been in these discussions with the scientists and all this. Look at the kind of discussions they have. For example, would a series of sensors in parallel, uh, in series, a series of sensor set, uh, sensors set in series, would it be conscious? Is consciousness because of the complexity of structure? So if I make a complex cardboard structure like a brain, would it be conscious? Is consciousness a product of complexity of information? So this one theory. But you know to an Vedantin what's happening? Something which is directly available to you right now in your experience. You're trying to abstract it and make it an object out there which you can study. Why? You know why? Because they, are do, they have no idea what they are studying. They want a thing to study. Without a thing there is nothing to study for them. But conscious experience is available to all of us. When you are awake, when you are dreaming, deep sleep, these are conscious, these are experiences. Object and subject, this is an experience. Talking, smelling, eating, all are experiences. These are all constantly available to us. Take a look. How will you take a look? 
The methods are given by Vedanta. One method we studied, the three states. So, how do you know that there is something beyond the brain's illusion of an eye? Forget the brain and the illusion. Are you experiencing an eye? Do you experience the brain or does the brain experience you? Let me ask you this question. The scientist will say, ridiculously in my opinion, the brain is experiencing you. No. You experience the brain. Even the scientist is a conscious being who experiences the brain. Whether that brain is producing consciousness, that's a big question. Which the scientist is but directly right now, the fact of experience is brain is something in your experience. Is morality also an illusion? So it follows from all of this. So get beyond that paradigm of physicality. Just appeal directly to your experience in order to understand Advaita Vedanta. Advaita Vedanta is not a theory which has been developed recently. It's just a report on what you are experiencing. What everybody, every human being has experienced all throughout. I'll just leave you with a... You know, this question about intelligence and consciousness. Right now, many artificial intelligence. So consciousness, artificial intelligence has to be conscious or not. What would Advaita say? No. Intelligence is a function of buddhi. So that is, is that consciousness or not? No. Buddhi is also like an app. It is lit up by you, the consciousness. And recently I found this insight is coming. Dr. Anil Seth. Uh, who works in England, he's a neuroscientist I think. So he made a very interesting distinction in a TED talk. He said, notice, you have to be conscious to suffer. You don't have to be smart to suffer. Deep Blue, the computer which beats chess masters, is smart. It displays intelligence. It displays intelligence, but it cannot suffer. It cannot suffer. There's no internal feeling of pain. But a little mouse, which is not as smart as deep blue, it can't play chess, it can suffer. It is conscious. You require consciousness to suffer or enjoy. You don't require intelligence to suffer or enjoy. A machine can be intelligent, it cannot suffer or enjoy. I may not be intelligent, but I can suffer or enjoy. Now here, for the first time I'm seeing an Neuroscientists making a clear distinction between intelligence and consciousness. A very, it's a very elegant distinction, an empirical distinction. Which Vedanta clearly says, intelligence is a function of Vijnana Maya Kosha. Consciousness is far beyond that. Alright. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Panamastu